If you would open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, we'll be in Galatians chapter 3 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Galatians. Back in this region of Galatia, back in this time period, the Christians or the believers, they were struggling with a question. And it's a question that, well, many of us or many people today still struggle with. And it was basically this. It was, how can we be made right with God? How can we be made right with God? You've heard it said before, you need to get right with God. Maybe you've even told somebody that before. Hey, you need to go get right with God. Well, what does that really mean? What does it mean to be right with God? How do we, or how are we right with God? So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church that he started. And and I say church, Galatia was a region. It was a series of, of smaller churches made up in the region of Galatia. So he's writing this letter that is to be passed around from church to church for them to be read. And what he's doing in this, he's basically telling them, he's answering the question, how to get right with God. You see, he had told them when he came to the region, when he established the churches, what it meant to be right with God. He explained to them that salvation, that they received the Spirit by their faith in Jesus Christ. But he also has now got word that there's some people coming behind him and they're trying to add on to what Paul had taught them. Paul said salvation comes by faith alone. And these men that came behind him, they were known as Judaizers. They wanted to add on to what Paul was saying. Yet what Paul's saying is right, they would say, but then you need to add something else. And in this case, they were putting themselves back underneath of the law, telling them they needed to be back underneath Judaism. You need to be back under the law of Moses, back underneath of it. They had been freed from it. Now they're putting them back under it. Now, I want to give us a warning. Anytime anybody, anywhere, tells you you need to add something to your faith, run away. It's not right. It's not true. Anytime I have to add something to my faith, we read it at the end of last week. Paul said it in chapter 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If somebody says, I have to add something to my faith, then we are essentially saying Christ died in vain. It happens. Some people add baptism to your faith. You can't be saved unless you're baptized. Paul doesn't say that. Christ didn't say that. We don't add baptism to our faith. It was a finished work of Christ on the cross. If somebody wants to add anything at all, all right, you need to start living a certain way. No, you don't. What you need is faith comes by salvation, and then that will change your life. You don't change your life first, and then you're accepted by God. You can never make yourself good enough to be accepted by God. You can never live righteously enough to be accepted by God. So we've been studying here in the book of Galatians, and the Apostle Paul is out to prove his point. Now, I I don't know that, we're never told that Paul was a lawyer of sorts, but he lays out a perfectly perfectly logical argument like a lawyer would make. He says in chapter 1, remember he said, the gospel that I'm teaching you, I've received from Jesus Christ alone. This is where I got what I'm teaching you from. It came from my encounter with Jesus Christ. And he spends the rest of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 saying, now let me share my experience with you in this gospel. And Paul shares how he received this gospel. gospel. Then he shares how I went to Jerusalem twice and I ministered to the, the apostles there and they accepted my gospel. And then Peter came to Antioch and he did something against my gospel and I called him on it. And I told him, Peter, you're, why are you telling them they have to live like Jews when you're living like a Gentile? Now we told that 
Peter never, we don't, we're not given Peter's response, but I believe Peter received the rebuke and I believe he accepted it. So in chapters 1 and 2, we can say Paul's sharing his experience with this gospel. Now as we get into chapter 3, in verses 1 through 5, as Paul's laying out this argument to prove to them that salvation is through faith alone, he's going to turn directly to their experience with this gospel. You see, this is the very, the, the gospel that the apostle Paul is defending is the gospel that Paul preached to them when he established the church. Now he's going to turn them back, he's going to turn back time, if you will, or turn back the clock and say, hey, listen, this is what I taught you then, and let's review what took place. And he's going to ask a series of questions. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read the first five verses together, then we'll go back and kind of, kind of pull them apart. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He asks a bunch of rhetorical type questions, which he already knows the answer to. But he's asking them to try to get them to think back. He starts out and he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Foolish Galatians. Now, that Greek word, here's what it means. It means unintelligent. It means senseless. But here's what it implies. It implies this. It's a person who is unwilling to use his or her mental faculties in order to understand something means they have the ability to understand something, but they're not using their mind to do it. They're not using their mind. They're not, they're not thinking about it. They're just closing it out. They're not, they're, not going to, they're not going to look at things logically, the Apostle Paul would say. It's, it's someone who has the knowledge, but they're not using it. You know what I'm about to tell you, Paul says. Paul says, you're foolish. You know this stuff. You've been there. We've experienced this together. He says, you're foolish. So it's not necessarily a derogatory term. Well, it is in a sense, and he's pretty harsh on them, but he, it, it's the idea that you guys know what's taking place here. And look what he says. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? That word means to cast a spell upon. To cast a spell upon. It means to deceive a person by devious, de, de, by de, ugh. deceive a person by devious and crafty means. To, and it literally means specifically to exert evil influence through the eye. In other words, the evil eye. You guys know what that is? My kids know what that is. My kids will act a certain way and I'll just kind of look at them. That's it. And I can exert influence over them just by the way that I look at them. And that's really what that word is implying. It means, it means they're bewitched. It means they're, somebody has come in, they've bewitched you, they've cast some sort of spell on you, they're, they're, you're looking at them, they've, they've said something in a way, and, and now you're just going to line up with what they say. You know how it goes, don't you? You're going to lunch with us, right, aren't you? And you're going, uh, yeah, of course I'm going, you know, when you really didn't have any plans on going because someone's trying to bully you into a position or bully you into an opinion. And they kind of give you that eye, like, you start to say something, they look at you, and then you stop saying it. You know, that, that's exactly what the word is talking about. Who's bewitched you? Who's cast this spell on you that you're missing what God, what God is doing? The evil eye. It's often defined as the ability to bring about evil results by a malicious gaze. 
Here's what's taken place. They've taken their eyes off Christ and they've placed it on the person teaching. And they've taken what the person's teaching is and they're believing it more so than what they've experienced and what they were taught by the Apostle Paul. Don't ever take your eyes off Jesus Christ and place them on a man or a woman or a person. Ever. Ever. What they should do and what you should do, what we should do, is when you listen to me, as I say these scriptures, I explain these things to you, check it out with what the Bible says. If it doesn't make sense, research it on your own. Don't just take what I say to be truth and be fact. Research it on your own. Challenge what I say with the scriptures. Don't pull somebody else's book or has a different opinion. Look at the scriptures and say, does, is what Rob's saying make sense? We've been studying the book of Galatians now for several weeks. Does it make sense what the Apostle Paul's laying out here? That's what the Bereans did, right? The Bereans, were, they searched the scriptures to find out if what they were being taught was true. The Galatians had taken their eyes off Christ. They had lost the focus of the simplicity of salvation. And they were beginning to add works to it. In order to be saved, I need to do this. In their case, it was in order to be saved, I need to become Jewish. I need to become, I need to, they were placing themselves back underneath the law. That's miserable. The very law that they couldn't keep, the very law that shows them they needed a savior, they're going to go, we got to go back and live the law. What they were freed from, I heard it explained this way. Remember the transition from middle school or from grade school to high school? There were certain rules in high school that you were, in middle school or grade school that you were under. Certain things you could do and certain things you couldn't do. And when you left grade school or middle school and you went to high school, you left all those rules behind you. You were no longer under those rules from the grade school or the middle school. And you became under the rules of the high school. Did you ever have any desire to go back to those rules of grade school or, or middle school or the younger rules where you had to walk on the sidewalk and you couldn't cut the corners and you had the safety patrol? We had a safety patrol. They wore the little yellow belts and they if you cut the corner, they made you go back and do it again and did you ever go back under those? Did you ever want to go back under those rules again? No. We wouldn't want to go back underneath of that. That's what the essentially they're taking these believers, both Jewish and Gentile, and they're saying you've got to go back underneath of the law. And Paul's fighting against this. Paul's saying, no, you don't. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And then he says this: before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul's saying, Christ crucified was clearly portrayed among you. It was made clear. That word means to write clearly and to write publicly. There was, Paul's, in other words, he's saying, I spoke it so clearly, it was like I put a billboard up. It was publicly written. It was publicly announced. What you are supposed to believe in Christ crucified, salvation through faith alone, I made it perfectly clear. But apparently now you've been deceived by thinking you have to add something to this. Do you see how he's turning the table or turning the page wheel? He's turning them back to the things that was told to them in the beginning. He's taking them back to the very beginning when they first got saved. That's important for us too. Remember what it was like when you first got saved? Remember what it was like when you first had your, your first real encounter where the Lord showed you something or, or the Lord you know, led you to do something or, or you, maybe it was just salvation, whatever it was. And Remember how excited you were. It was like, wow, I can't, this is real. This isn't, this isn't just somebody's imagination. God is really real. And then we kind of grow and sometimes we can get more mature and we think that we don't need to go back to those original days. We don't need to remember what it was like when we first got saved. I remember what it was like when I first got saved. When I first started to follow the Lord, I, I couldn't wait to see what he was going to do next in my life. Oh, I, was, I believed for a long time before anything happened. 
But when I first said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, and I got on my knees and I made that promise, and I said, God, whatever, whatever you want me to do, I couldn't wait. He started doing things. It was absolutely incredible. I couldn't wait to see what he would do next. So Paul's taking them back to when they first got saved. And look what he says. He asked them a question there in verse 2. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a simple question. When you received the Holy Spirit, when you got saved, when the Lord came upon you, did you you receive it by the works of the law or did you receive it by faith? Of course the answer is faith. In other words, you were keeping the law if you were Jewish before this, but you didn't receive. But now I come to you, I preach Christ crucified, and you receive, and you receive the Spirit. You receive salvation by your faith. So he's taking them back when you first received it. It's a simple question. And the answer is clear. We receive the Spirit by faith in Christ. And he asks them again, Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, that you are now being made perfect by the flesh. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you are now being matured by the flesh? Made perfect by the flesh means being matured in your Christian walk. You're maturing. It doesn't mean perfect in a sense where you're living a perfect life, but it means that you're maturing. Are you being matured in your faith by your flesh? In other words, what he's asking, like, what he's asking is this. Oh, are you so foolish? You've begun in the Spirit. Your walk with the Lord, your walk with Christ, your salvation came through the Spirit. Now you're adding to that the works of your flesh. Is that maturing you? No, the answer is no. no, We're not being matured. But here's what it looks like. We all start walking with the Lord based on faith. We believe. We believe in something. We believe that we believe in the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. He rose again. He was buried and he rose again. I believe that. That's my step of faith. That's how I start walking with the Lord. Now, if I want to mature, if I want to grow in that, you can know nothing else and be saved, but Jesus died for, your, for the sins, for my sins. And I believe that and I'm saved. I can know nothing else. Now, if I want to mature, am I going to do that through faith or am I going to do that through my works? It's an interesting question. Is it, is it my faith that's going to mature me? Is it going to, or is it my works? See, the Apostle Paul's telling the church in Galatia, you started out in the Spirit, and now you're working in the flesh. We do that. I do that. I can't tell you how many things I've started in the Spirit and then becomes a burden, becomes a work of my flesh. And I have to, and typically when that happens, I find myself worn out, stressed out, freaked out, not knowing what I'm doing. Because when you start something in the Spirit, you don't have the ability to do that in your flesh. That's why you went to the Spirit in the first place. When you, when you say, Lord, all right, let's do something cool together. He says, great, I'm going to do something with you. Let's start a radio station. You go, no, I can't do that. I can. I'm God. I can do that. Let's do that together. Will you do that with me? All right, Lord, I'll do it. And we start out in the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, decisions have to be made. I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do. I start to, get, I get, I start to worry. I, start to, I put it all back in the flesh. I start looking at things logically. I start looking at things, you know, hypothetically. I start looking at things, well, what do I do in this situation? And my wife is great. She says, well, have you prayed about it? Well, no, not yet. She goes, well, why don't you go pray about it? The Lord's got an answer for you. She's great at pointing me right back to the Lord again. And she'll see me when I start to get stressed out or start to get worried about something or start to get worked up over something. And what he, the purpose and what he's saying is, listen, you can start in the spirit, but you can find yourself in the flesh, and that's not a good thing. 
The Galatians started their walk with Christ in the Spirit. Now they're finding themselves trying to maintain their walk or trying to mature with the way that they're acting. I will, God will like me more if I keep the Jewish law. God will like me more if I go to church. God will be pleased with me more if I read my Bible. God will be pleased, more pleased, better pleased, how do I say that? God will like me more, I'll say it that way, so I don't completely destroy the English language. God will like me more if I go to Thursday night study, if I go to prayer meeting. Is any of that true? He already loves you so much he couldn't love you anymore. It doesn't matter what you do. Even he loves you the same before you even believed on him. That's what blows it away. But here's what happens. We start our relationship in the spirit. And then we start to put these rules on ourselves. These rules and we start to put these burdens on ourselves in the flesh. Well, then what happens when you place yourself underneath of a set of rules or underneath of a law? Because that's what they are. We basically set up a law for ourselves. In this case, it was the Mosaic law, but I can set up a law for myself. Then you know what's going to happen? How long are you able to keep that law? Not very long. Maybe you get a week, two weeks, maybe you do three weeks or four weeks, but eventually, you know what happens? The very law that you set up, the very thing that you said, God will be pleased with me if I do, you start breaking it. Adam and Eve only had one law to keep. Don't eat of this tree. That's it, just one. And they couldn't do it. They broke it. When you start breaking the law, then you begin to think, God's got a problem with me because I'm not setting up my law. And God's saying, I never set up that law for you. I never set that up. I didn't tell you you have to do that. Now there's a, there's a problem or there's a, there's a question that arises. So Rob, you're saying I don't have to do anything for the Lord? What you're saying is all I have to do is believe and I can live any way that I want? No, I'm not saying that at all. Because with your true belief is going to be your desire to do the things of God. Understand something. Obedience to God is not legalism. Obedience to the law that you set up is legalism. Okay? Obedience to God is not legalism. When God says, when God puts on my heart, and he did it on a very specific date at a very specific time, I don't want you drinking anymore. No more alcohol for you. Okay? That's obedience to God. That's not obedience to anything that man set up. When, the, when God reveals something in me, I don't want you doing this anymore. That, then I become obedient to him. That's not legalism. That's simple obedience. And, and understand there's a difference. If I truly have faith in what I believe, then I'm willing to take the step and place my life, my future, in his hands. I heard it illustrated this way one time. Sort of the difference between, between faith and just, and just basic belief. I heard it illustrated with the, with the story of a tightrope walker. He stretched out a tightrope across, uh, well, we'll use Niagara Falls, okay? Stretched out a tightrope across Niagara Falls and set up a certain day and he's going to walk across Niagara Falls. And all the people gathered. He's not going to have any safety harnesses or anything else. And all the people gathered and set it up and they were gathering and they were cheering him on and he did it. He walked all the way over and he walked back. And then he said to them, he said, this time I'm going to do it carrying, carrying 100 pounds in a wheelbarrow. I'm going to push the wheelbarrow across the tightrope. Do you think I can do it? And all the people, yeah, go ahead, you can do it. You can do it. And they're cheering him on. And he pushes the wheelbarrow across. And he pushes it back again. And he does it. And the people are going crazy. And he says, this time I'm going to do it with 200 pounds in the wheelbarrow. And they're getting rocks and they're filling the wheelbarrow. Do you guys think I can do it? And the crowd's cheering him on. Yeah, you can do it. And he does it. And he comes back. He goes, this time 
I'm going to do it one more time. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Oh, you believed I could do it with 200 pounds. When it comes to you getting in the wheelbarrow, you're going, well, I don't know. Hold on a second. I don't know about that. I wouldn't get in the wheelbarrow, would you? But here's the point. True faith in Christ, you'll get in the wheelbarrow with him. You'll get in the wheelbarrow with him because you trust him to accomplish whatever he sets out to accomplish. Because you're no longer working on your own strength or your own abilities. I can stand on the sideline and cheer the guy across on the tightrope because it doesn't affect me. But when I have to get in the wheelbarrow, when you have to get in the wheelbarrow, then we start to really think, how much faith do I have? First, I just believe he can do it. You see, Christ wants our faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Christ wants our lives to be put into his hands. And Paul is reminding the Galatians, hey, you guys started this right and you've gotten off on the wrong track. You've gotten off in the flesh. There are people in church this morning, none of you guys, we won't talk about you guys, other churches that are burdened by the, by the rules they've placed on themselves. They've placed these rules. I have to do this, this, and this, or otherwise God isn't happy with me. And they find themselves constantly failing. They find themselves living in a life of guilt and misery because they can't live up to their own rules that they set for themselves their own laws that they set in place. Paul says, stop it. Don't do that. Live an obedience life. Live an obedient life, not a legalistic life. We don't want to be Christians who have to set these things up and then because you're going to fail. Set up a, just one good law. All right, I want you guys to pray before every meal for the rest of your life. Do you think you could do it? No, you're going to forget. Can you get just it, 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 the basic things you set up you will not keep for yourself. That's why the freedom in Christ comes with the grace, comes with the fact that I'm not underneath of the law anymore. And Paul reminds them, listen, you started in the spirit, now you've gone to this work in the flesh. Remember, he's turning it back to their experience with Christ. You experienced some things with Christ. Look what you experienced. He says, verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, you've suffered for Christ. You've suffered, physically suffered for Christ. Is, for it, did you do it in vain if, you want to, if you're adding to the gospel? If indeed it was in vain, he's saying it wasn't in vain. If indeed it was in vain, look what else he says. Therefore, verse 5, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. Paul says you've seen the miracles take place. You've seen these incredible things happen. You've seen the Spirit working. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul says the Spirit is working based on faith, not by the works of the law. Not by the works, not by the Mosaic law, not by the rules you set up for yourself. The Spirit is working in your life this morning by your faith in Jesus Christ. Simply put, not on how you are living as a Christian, how you measure up. Because that's what we like to do. We like to see how we measure up, right? How do I measure up? I'm, I'm more righteous than the person next to me, right? I'm more righteous than the drug addict that's strung out on, on, on the street. I'm more righteous than the businessman who's living for money because I don't have any money, so that makes me more righteous. I'm more righteous, and we like to add these things up, but let me put it to you this way. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Three guys are on a boat. They're 100 miles from shore. Three of them. One guy can't swim at all. Boat's sinking. One guy, he's a pretty decent swimmer. And one guy, he's an Olympic swimmer, really good swimmer. As the boat goes down, 
The guy that can't swim, he jumps in and takes off. Well, you know what happened to him, don't you? He didn't make it very far. Bloop, 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 bloop. Didn't make it. The next guy, he's a pretty decent swimmer. He jumps out of the boat and he swims for, oh, five or six miles or so. But you know what happened to him? He drowned too. The next guy is the Olympic swimmer. Remember, they're 100 miles offshore. He jumps in the water and he swims for 50 miles and he drowns. The end result is the same. One was a better swimmer. One person can be a better Christian. But if you're living based on the law, the end result is the same. It's death. I can look at myself and say, I'm doing better than the person next to me. But ultimately, if I'm living based on the law, on the rules that I set up, set up, set up for myself, the result is death. It's separation from Christ. Look at it. He puts it this way. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You receive the Spirit. You've seen the miracles as a result of your faith, not of your works. He's also basically telling them this. You can get off track pretty easily. You've gotten off track. You've gotten off. But it's okay. I'm trying to bring you back. That's why the Apostle Paul's writing this letter. I'm trying to bring you back. So here he says this. We have Paul, we've heard Paul's experience. We have uh, reviewed the experience of the Galatians here in the first six verses. This is what you've experienced when you came to Christ. And now the question could be raised, well, what does the Scripture say? What do the Scriptures say about what you're saying, Paul? You've taught us about salvation by faith alone. You've told us it in your life. You, now you've pointed us back to the beginning of our life and how we got started. But what do the Scriptures say? And Paul goes right into that question. He says, look at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted him for righteousness. Now notice what he says there. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted him for righteousness. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, you'd find out that God was making a promise to Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram. And he told Abram some things. He basically told him that, I'm going to make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. But he also said something that he said, in you, in your descendant, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. All nations will be blessed. So by saying that, what he's saying is in chapter, in verse 6 here, just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted him for righteousness. Abraham was the father of the Jews. He's the father of the Jews. He's the one they all looked up to. He's where their, their country, their, their culture, their nation started. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so were you. You know, that was the idea, Father Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. Now, to them... Being a descendant of Abraham was a big deal. They thought that being a descendant of Abraham made them something. Paul is going back and he's going to say, listen, was Abraham righteous? They would say, of course he was. What made him righteous? And Paul is going to say here, he was righteous because he believed God. He believed that God would do what he said he was going to do. That's what made Abraham righteous. He believed God. Not based on what he did, because he had some pretty good mess ups in his life. You know? He had some pretty good whoppers and things that, he, that, he, that he, he, he blew it a few times. And it's recorded for us in the scriptures, which I think is great. But he was counted righteous because he believed God. Abraham was counted righteous before Moses even had the law. That's what he's saying. Paul's going, let's go back to the beginning. Abraham was righteous before he even had the law. Now, 
The word accounted. What does it mean? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It means this. It's an accounting term. It means to reconcile. It means to calculate. It means to literally put something else or put something towards somebody else's account. It's to, if I, if I give you, if I was to give you money this morning, you go deposit it in your bank account, you've accounted that to you, okay? You've accounted it. Here, what we see taking place, when someone is under the law, they are the keeper of their own account. In other words, everything they do is credited to their account, Everything they do, every, you know, every old lady they help across the street, there's a, there's a credit there. Everything, you know, every time they go to church, there's a credit there. Every time they do something wrong, there's a deduction there. And they begin keeping this sort of deduction. But the problem is, they'll never have enough. They can never get enough. On the other hand, there's an account available. It's the account of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness, his account. We can try to earn our own righteousness by doing certain things, or we can look at Christ's account. And here's what he says. You want my account or do you want your account? You can't have both. You can't have both. You can live under my account, under my righteousness, to stand before God based on my righteousness, or you can stand before God based on your righteousness. The problem is, if you stand before God based on your righteousness, you'll be like the swimmers. No matter how much you've added up, you're always going to fail. You've always come in, you're always going to die. Because you're always going to be short. But if you stand under his righteousness, you'll never run out. No matter how messed up, no matter what you do, no matter what, what, what mistakes you make, the, the account is still full. It's never going to run out because it's been given to you. It's been imparted to you. So here we read that Abraham, he believed God, and notice that's faith and belief, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. That was a smack in the face to the Jew. They thought, I'm a son of Abraham. The Gentiles, they're not sons of Abraham. Paul says, no, 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 no. You might be a natural descendant of Abraham, but they're a spiritual descendant of the promise that was given to Abraham. Christ came through the line of Abraham. When you believe on Jesus Christ, you become a son of Abraham. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying. For a Gentile, they're rejoicing. They've always felt like second-class citizens. They've, they've felt like, well, the Jews, they're, they're Jewish, we're not Jewish. We're left out. They're trying to make us Jewish. This is good news for the Gentile, and for the Jew, it's almost repulsive. What do you mean these Gentiles are now sons of Abraham? Paul says, you're missing the point. And I'm using this to, he's, he's beginning his doctrinal, scriptural argument here. He says, back in Genesis, when the promise was given to Abraham, when the promise was made all nations will be blessed by him or through his seed or through his descendants. That included the Gentiles. Paul's saying that was God's plan from the beginning. You're missing the point. God's plan wasn't just to save the Jews. His plan was to save all nations or to bless all nations. So he goes on. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with believing in Abraham. Do you see it? Back in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, in you all nations will be blessed. All nations will be blessed. Abraham received his righteousness before the law of Moses existed. Abraham received his righteousness by 
What? By faith. He believed what God had told him. He believed, he believed that the promise of God would come true. Now, because these Jewish believers thought they were superior, they find this offensive. They find it, they find it difficult to understand. But Paul's using the Scriptures now to prove his argument. Is there anything greater to stand on in an argument than to use the Scriptures? And, and Paul stands back on what happened way back in Genesis chapter 12 and says, look guys, this is the way God planned it. It's from the beginning. You guys are missing the whole point. The purpose wasn't to just to save the Jews. The purpose was to save all people. And he goes and he says, well, I'm going to back up one other, one other thing here. This is an area of Scripture that sometimes can be used to, uh, to insert what's called replacement theology. And uh, I don't want to get too, too into depth into it, but what it is is basically replacement theology says that here, and they, and they, use, this, they use this Scripture to, to, to stand on, they, they basically says this, that since the Jewish people rejected Christ, now all the promises for the Jewish people are now turned over to the church. They're all turned over to the church. So therefore, the church is standing in the place of where the Jewish people were. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. Now it's the church. And that's called replacement theology because you're replacing Israel with the church. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe in replacement theology because I, and here's why I don't believe it. When God says in the beginning, my covenant will stand with you forever, he means forever. He means forever. But what God has done is he's created another class of people here. Before, it was Jew or Gentile. Now we have what's called the church, those who believe on Jesus Christ. And that, that could come from either the Jewish class or the Gentile class. So he basically creates another class of people here. Now, and the reason you'd say, what, Rob, why are you bringing that up? Because if you believe in replacement theology, if you believe that God is done with the nation of Israel, then that affects the way that you look at all of the end times throughout the Scripture, including the book of Revelation, because then you have to take all the things in Revelation and apply them to the church. And that's not what we want to do. We want to make sure that we understand that God is not done with the nation of Israel. Right now, we're in what's called, and the Scripture clearly tells us, time of the Gentiles. Time of the Gentiles. There's a chance for every... We're living in what's called a dispensation of grace. There's a time for anybody and everybody who's willing to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. Anybody that's willing to, it's, it's living there. There will come a time where Christ returns for His church, for His bride, the bride of Christ. He will remove the church. It's called the rapture of the church. From that point on, the tribulation will begin... For when that tribulation begins, its focus is the nation Israel. It's then trying to bring the nation Israel back into alignment with Christ. Because right now, is the nation Israel saved? No. They don't believe, they don't believe, it. They, they don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They will. They will. During the tribulation period, it will be clearly indicated to them. And many of them will lose their lives. And many Christians, many people will get saved during that period as well and lose their life as a result of it. But when you, when you insert that, and sometimes when you look at scriptures like this, and I don't want to confuse anybody, so I won't spend too much time here, but you have to make sure, when I'm going to say, if I'm going to apply replacement theology here, then I have to say, does that line up with everything in the Bible? Or do I find that it's, it's a little bit shaky? Doesn't, it fits here, but it doesn't fit there. And I think what you'll find is, is replacement theology can be a very dangerous, very dangerous thing. So here's what I want you to close with. And we're going to have communion together today. What time is it? Okay, good. We receive salvation through faith alone. We don't want to add anything to it. 
We don't have to add anything to it. That's good news. If somebody adds something to it, if somebody needs to, ever tells you you need to do something else besides believe, besides have faith, it's not true. That's what Paul's arguing against here. And it doesn't matter what it is. It can be good things. But I want you to close with this thought because somebody might say, you know what, Rob, I realize we don't have to keep the law and I realize I don't have to do anything, but I'm blessed when I do. We don't have to keep a Sabbath day, right, on the New Testament. But when I keep a Sabbath day, I'm blessed by it. Why is that? Why is it that I don't have to do it, but if I do it, I'm blessed by it? Well, that's the blessing of the Lord. When you do the things the Lord asks you to do, when you live the life that he's asked you to live, you're going to be blessed by it. Obedience is not legalism. Do I have to, do I, do, do I have to, let's see, let's see. Uh, the Lord has told, told me many years ago to stop drinking. If I was to go out and have a glass of wine with dinner, would I lose my salvation? No, not at all. Would I be pretty miserable? I would be guilty and convicted, and it would just, it would be a wreck. So by living in obedience, I'm blessed by it. It's not something I have to do for salvation. It's something I want to do. It's something I get to do. It's the blessing comes when the Lord says, hey, Rob, I want you to live like this. Or I'm studying the scriptures and I say, you know what? I should be slow to anger. I'm not going to get angry anymore. I want you to live like this. And I start, I start aligning my life with the scriptures. That's not, that's not legalism. That's me obeying what God's telling me to do. Now, if I place the standard on myself, that becomes legalism. But when I align with what the scripture says, and what God says, that becomes obedience. Do you understand the difference? Legalism will wear you out. <coughs> well, Rob, how do I know if I'm being legalistic or obedient? Is it bringing you closer to God or further away when you fail? When you fail in whatever it is you're doing, does it bring you closer to God or does it bring you further away? If I was to go out and have a glass of wine tonight after prayer with dinner or whatever, and I wouldn't do that, but if I was, would it bring me closer to God or would it bring me further away? it would bring me closer to God because I'd be on my knees in repentance going, Lord, forgive me. You told me not to do that and I did it anyways. But if I've set that standard for myself, when I fail, I'm going to be like, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling guilty. So I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to not go to church next week. I'm not going to be involved in things. I'm not, I'm not going to pray because he doesn't want to hear from me. I'm not going to read my Bible because I can't, I'm, I'm a lousy Christian. Do you see the point? If, it's, if, what, if, if the way that you feel when you fail... Is it bringing you closer or is it bringing you further away? When we fail in our, in our sin and we fall short, that should draw you closer to God. If not, it might just be you putting a standard on yourself that you don't need to live by. Let the Lord be the one that places the standards in your life. Not a pastor, not a church, not the scriptures, and the Lord Jesus Christ, things that he says. And I say all this because as we study the book of Galatians, it is awesome that our salvation is not dependent on us. That's great news. Because I don't know about you, but I find myself turning to the God for repentance and forgiveness all the time. Lord, I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I acted that way. All the time. But I find this. When I go, he's there with forgiveness. He doesn't ever say, well, you do it one more time and you're out of here. He's there to forgive me. And I want us to focus on that. I want us to focus this morning on what his grace really means to us. It means we can blow it. It means we can really mess things up. 
and go back before him and say, Lord, forgive me. And we simply repent. We simply turn away from that thing that we were doing. And he says, come on back. I've been waiting for you to come back. I've been waiting for you to come back. And, and we get this idea sometimes. Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm a bad Christian. I'm a bad wife. I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad son or daughter. I'm a bad this or that. Whenever you feel that you're not worthy, just tell yourself you're not. Just remind yourself, you're right. I'm not worthy. I am absolutely positively not worthy. How is it that we can go in the presence of God? Because of the sacrifice that was made on the cross. Because he died for my sins, he was buried, and he rose again. It's that simple. That's what we're celebrating this morning.